0: trip just moved me beyond anything that i had ever seen, witnessed, or experienced in my life. I can't even tell you how many animals I have arrowed wearing a bright purple vest and wearing a bright green this or that because the only thing I could afford was the one on the clearance rack and the only one on the clearance rack made me look like Barney. You could also be eating your egg wing muffin at a McDonald's and a 60-inch bull moose literally walks through the drive-through. It has everything to do with sitting on a river and listening to a river go by while you're fly fishing hunting or whatever it is that you're doing that's that's really the soul this is donnie vincent and you're listening to the wild initiative
1: Put down your latte and pull on your boots. You and I and everybody listening to this
2: owns 640 million acres. I think he killed more deer. Drinking his coffee, smoking a cigarette in the pickup truck than I did spending all
0: that time freezing my butt off. Something that I would hope is that people realize that those are wild animals and they have savage natures.
2: I look forward to packing animals out. I look forward to that pain of success. Doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you live. I've said it before and I'll, you know what, I'll say it again louder for the people in the back. Your present circumstance should not limit your passions.
1: This is Jay Scott of the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Hey, this is Ryan Galahad. Hi, this is Jules McLean. Hey everybody, Jason Carter here with Epic Outdoors. Hey guys, this is Tim Burnett with Solo Hunter. You're listening to The Wild Initiative.
2: Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild
1: Initiative brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective.
2: All right, also getting on to today's episode, I am super excited to have the one and only Donnie Vincent. Donnie's a biologist, a filmmaker. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about adventure hunts, uh, you know, this guy (laughs) has done, it seems like, just about all of it. So I'm super excited to have you on, Donnie. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm glad we were able to make it work.
0: Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to get to chit chat with you and, and, um, I'm very much looking forward to it.
2: So one thing I always like love to hear is because everyone's got such a different story and, you know, I, I started so late in life. I just love to hear from everyone how they initially got introduced to hunting. What, what kind of got you started on this, this whole journey?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I've talked about it a few times. Um, I have an odd beginning because I don't necessarily come from a hunting family, but both my grandfathers hunted, my father hunted, but hunting to them was, you know, they did it maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. I wasn't involved in it, but they would go out with their buddies. I think it was far more about cabin time (laughs) than it was about anything else. And, um, within my family, my introduction was a visual one. I could see my dad's guns. I could see his gun cabinet his hunting knives, um, I, I a small collection of hunting clothing that was all really classical stuff, you know, like canvases, things like that. So it was inspiring to see the wood on my dad's guns and he was good about cleaning his guns. And so I could, you know, I, I remember seeing him with oily rags, running him down the blued portions of his guns. It was just really cool that even though he wasn't hunting, he always kind of maintained this kit of a hunter. And so, uh, and, and, and just recently I found out That my mom's mom, my mom's dad, my grandfather on my mom's side, he would travel out west and hunt and he hunted basically for meat. That was his biggest motivation. And I'm sure also just to get outside like the rest of us, but he hunted. And my mom was saying that until she was relatively older, probably in her early teens, she's like, we basically didn't even understand that you could get meat at the grocery store. (laughs) And she's like, you know, her dad had provided and she's like, I remember we would eat, you know, dinner would be rabbit, squirrels, snapping turtles, uh, and he'd go out west and shoot antelope and mule deer every year. So literally that were their dinners, you know, white tail deer, things like that. And so that was, but he died before I was even born. Um, And so I never got to meet him. But obviously, there's some, some delineation there. And then my dad's dad as rumor has it, he loved to hunt as well, but as rumor goes, and this is really funny to kind of combine these two, if you combine these two man, I feel like you really kind of find me in the middle, but my dad's grandfather, uh, is legendary for hunting without bullets. Uh, apparently he would go, he loved to go hunting in Northern Maine. He would carry a rifle. He'd have his backpack, his hunting knife, everything, but he didn't really have an interest in shooting a deer but he loved walking around. So he would go deer hunting with his buddies and he wouldn't take any bullets. <laughs> he, he didn't want to have that responsibility of taking animals life. So if you kind of blend those two guys, it's, I kind of meet somewhere in the middle. And then of course, as I did more and more research, cause people, the, the first person that asked me that question was national geographic. They asked me why it is that I was a hunter and I realized that I couldn't answer the question at all. And so it really made me start questioning why it is that I'm hunting because when somebody as serious as national geographic asks you you know how is it that you can take an animal's life cut them up into pieces put them in a backpack and carry them out how is it that you can also tell me that you love nature you you love you love animals you're you know how do how do these two things blend together and so that's where i really started doing some research on why it is that any of us really hunt and and it was very inspiring to to do that research so that's basically how I got started.
2: Well, I mean, that's the, that's the, the biggest dichotomy. That's, I think what is so hard for people to understand at any given time is the idea of most hunters I know are the most passionate people about protecting and conserving animals. Um, but they're also the most passionate about taking them home in a backpack and putting them on the grill. Um,
0: that's, right. that's right. Yeah. And one is not removed from the other, right? Right. Yeah,
2: and it is hard to explain. Even when you are self-aware enough to really understand why you do it, it's sometimes it can be very difficult to to really put that into words. And in a way that somebody that has never, never been hunting, or even half of the time, let alone never really been out of the city, trying mm-hmm. to explain that to someone, it's it's a difficult task. And it's I think it's one of the most important things that we as as representatives of hunting can do
0: yeah it's 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 super important and really if you think about it the converse the converse of it the person that lives in the city the person that lives an established life and utilizes grocery stores and utilizes um, getting their food from wherever it is that they buy their food whether they have it delivered from amazon they buy it at a local grocery store wherever but in visiting restaurants things like that like really the hunter's lifestyle is can be identified as that's our origin and so really the question should be how is it that you are able to go to the city and shop from stores and go to restaurants and not feel any existing or concurrent need to be more involved in getting your food or more involved in the outdoors and so i really it's funny we're always asked and I don't like to draw a line in the sand. I don't like to build walls between, cause I think, you know, good conversations will get us everywhere, but really that's the more difficult thing. If you really look at our origin as people and humans, that's, that's more difficult understanding is how are you are able to move to the city and really it boils down to comfort and it boils down to being provided for so that these people can focus their energies on other things, right? They don't want to concern themselves uh, with, with getting food or growing food, or they, they'd rather concern themselves with, uh, with engagements with people or a particular job or, or whatever it is that they're doing. And really, um, I think they're short siding themselves. If I'm being completely honest, I think you take anyone from the city. I don't care if they are, um, a PETA activist. I don't care if they're a vegetarian, a vegan, or just a city kid that's never seen the country. You take any of those people, you take them out in the wilderness, for a multitude of days, immerse them. They don't have to kill anything, but just immerse them in the experience. And it's going to be life changing for them.
2: It really is. We should feel alien. We should not feel at home in the city because it's like you said, it's not our origin. We, as people were not built to sit in offices at desks all day long, sit in our cars, go home, sit on the couch and and not connect with with what's out there we're not built that way and i mean we should feel that should feel alien to us and i don't think you know until you've actually experienced our natural state and home you won't won't understand that
0: yeah that's that's exactly correct and if you think about you know it's not only were we not really designed to live in cities the planet was really not designed to to have eight billion of us on it. And so, you know, the the planet, because of our medical care, because of our cities, because of our infrastructure, because of massive amounts of land being converted into row crop, because, you know, of of beef industry and pork industry and all these different things, we're able to grow more people than really the planet can sustain. And so we, you know, imagine North America, when it was Native American tribes and spanning from coast to coast and border to border, and even obviously you know they didn't really understand or, or even care that there was the North American continent right they they went into Canada and there was no border and they went to Mexico and there was no border. it was just a change in in environments you know, and they had to adapt as a people. But imagine when they had the herds and the lakes and the rivers, and obviously we came as European settlers and and affected the the harmony of everything and, you know, and the world perpetuates in such manners. But if we all would have remained on our continents, which I'm not saying that exploration isn't amazing because it is. But you just wonder really what would the earth look like now? What would the planet look like if everyone kind of stayed in their zones and their populations were mitigated by the food and the weather that was available to them? You know, we would have we would have either come and gone or we'd still be flourishing in our tribes until the next major catastrophic um, extinction were to happen. Uh, And uh, it's just it's just fascinating to think about what we have perpetuated ourselves i mean you and i are recording a podcast on a computer you're in montana right now i'm in wisconsin this is this is absurd as it gets if you want to break it down and think about it
2: it's it's wild and you know and again just like you're you're not saying that okay it's bad that that european settlers came over here whatever you're not making necessary judgments on this it's more of just an exercise to think like okay yeah you know if we got the industrial revolution happening only over in this area and this is areas maybe staying a more of a hunter gatherer state or would, would they have built up technology further over here? What, what would have happened? It's, it's such a, such a wild thing to start like letting your mind wander around and, and kind of
0: see, see where you end up. Yeah, that's all it is. It's being an observer. It's asking yourself questions. It's being mindful of where you are and where you're going. And so selfishly, like, I I think it's very selfish. I, I, anything that I do, I I do consider the environment. I'm D i am I do consider the habitat. I do consider like everything that I do, I want to make the areas that I'm visiting or exploring or living in better. Um, of course I'm also somehow making them worse, right? When I turn the key on my pickup truck, it starts the engine combusts, and fumes come out the back. So, we all have a footprint. Like, I don't, I don't care how it is that you live your life. I don't even care if you think you're off grid, like you have a footprint, you're using batteries, you're using technology, you're using wires that had to come from somewhere. They have a carbon emission. They have a carbon footprint. Like there's no way to separate yourself from it. But I just like the mindfulness of, of my selfish ride. Like I want to spend my life outside. I want to watch the sunrise and fall. I want to see the weather. I want to see the animals. And, you know, I wish I lived decades ago, right. Many decades ago. Like it'd be really interesting to to live uh, a time when there's a lot more freedoms in the States and a lot more freedoms in the world. And, and, um, I definitely don't feel like this is an optimal time for me to be living, but maybe this is a very good time for me to be, you know, doing my work and sharing it with certain people. And maybe these are messages that people need to hear and experience and, and, um, it really is a, a rich lifestyle that I that I have myself into, but it has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with filming. It has nothing to do with dollars that come into a bank account. It has everything to do with sitting on a river and listening to a river go by while you're fly fishing or caribou hunting or whatever it is that you're doing. That's that's really the soul. You know, it's all. There's always a a balance.
2: It's all. You know, there's always, for the most part, positives and negatives to all of this. And you know, like you said, it's wild the the fact that whatever yeah, a thousand plus miles away from each other yeah. and able to record this podcast in real time. You know, yeah. it's not, you know, and one of, you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier, we were discussing, you know, your film, the rivers divide. When I first started hunting, you know, I'd sat in a tree stand once or twice. I had had a coworker introduce me to the the whole concept of whatever you want to call it back country hunting, Western hunting, mountain hunting, yeah. you know, it has a hundred different names, but yeah. the idea of, of, that adventure and going in uh and and hiking and and working for this and i i was getting into this and i was consuming all of this all of this media for inspiration and and as we discussed one of your Uh, one of your films was a huge inspiration to me. The river's divide was the first hunting film I ever watched. And it was somebody had shared it and I'm like, Oh, this is cool. You know, I can just order it right here on, I think Vimeo or whatever. And, you know, sat down and put it up while I was working and I I ended up not getting any work done the entirety of the time I was watching the film because I got so (laughs) into it. Um, And yeah, we have this technology. And if you think about it, like if we didn't have the, you didn't have this option to share that that video, even if it was 15 years ago, something like that, yeah. that when a video on demand wasn't a thing, like I would have had to order a DVD and yeah. wait for it to show up or order a VHS tape. And, and I may not have ever done that. and I may not have gotten that level of inspiration. And so, you know, it's, there's always those pluses and minuses. And I think it's important for us to find the benefits of it and make use of those. And then do our best to discard or ignore those negatives, but
0: yeah, it's all information. It's your experiences, right? I, I, every single time I go to Alaska or even in my own backyard, every single time I'm taking a walk or see a coyote or, or just all I'm just taking in the experiences. I I snowshoed probably three miles or four or five miles last night, um, down a frozen river, just, uh, walk my dogs and to get some exercise myself and, and um you know i ended up finding three dead deer and seeing a bunch of bald eagles and i watched the sunset and i watched the stars come out while i was hiking and and i could hear some great horn owls hooting and and um it was amazing it it was it was amazing and i i walked past some red osier dogwood was growing along these little bushes these little red bushes were growing along the river and and, um, I didn't see what species it was, but it was a bunch of little sparrows and they were all just little puff balls and they're warming themselves as the sun was setting. And then I walked by and they all flew, but I think that was going to be the roost for the night. And so I was starting to think, you know, I started thinking like, do they roost there every night? Is this, and then I started thinking like, you know, these little bushes, like I have them on, um, some of the properties that I hunt. So I was just wondering, like, are, you know, are, are the songbirds are my songbirds, my songbirds roosting. on? <laughs> This one, my mind has doing. I was literally walking in my backyard last night for exercise with my dogs. And these are all the experiences that I had. And I was watching the ice, how it was pushing up on shore and looking at how amazingly thick it is. And there was some, there's probably 20 different guys ice fishing. And I was curious what they were seeing. And then I started thinking back to childhood memories that I had when I would visit my uncle in, in Minnesota and he would have walleyes and perch flopping around in the sink. And I'd see him cleaning that he'd caught ice fishing and, that's how my mind works, man. I was in my own backyard and it it doesn't matter. It's just when I'm seeing the wildlife and feeling the weather and just moving my body, like it's, I feel like a billionaire. I feel like the richest man alive when I'm doing things like that.
2: So I think it's so important because even, you know, I just moved here to Montana, like, like we were discussing. And um, I still catch myself getting overwhelmed in work and and just disappearing into my computer or yeah. conference calls or whatever. It doesn't whatever. matter where you live. Oh yeah. And I, I, you kind of think like, Oh, I'm here in Montana. It's so accessible. Of course I'm going to be spending more time out. Well, just because it's accessible, doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to take advantage of that. I've, I've finally, you know, over the past month, I've pretty much, I've forced myself, which it sounds silly to say forcing myself, but I told myself that every day I have to at least spend an hour Outside doesn't matter how cold it is, you know, I have to just go out and enjoy the time, even if it's just walking the dogs like around the block and and admiring the bridgers, you know, as the sun's going down, as they're turning purple, or, you know, maybe waking up really early one morning, freezing my butt off and going, going on a trail hike, just something simple. And I've told myself I have to do that every day now because it's just, again, it's alien to us sitting here at a desk at a computer, that should feel alien. Yeah. And, and it's so good for your mental health and just your appreciation and love for the world to yeah. go out and experience that.
0: And we, we talk ourselves into these fevers, right? I was just talking to a girlfriend of mine uh, the other day and she was telling me she's uh, she works, she's very high up in a, in a corporate structure. She said they had a, a video conference call the other day and they started out the video conference call Uh, with one of their major clients, one of their vendors, they started out this video conference call talking about, they had everyone in the room. They said who this year has not used all of their PTO, their paid time off. And almost everyone in the room raised their hand. And they said, how many of you haven't used more than a week of your PTO? And you know, several people and how many of you haven't used two weeks and a few people and how many haven't used three weeks and a few people. And and they were literally showboating this to the client to say like, look at how hard our employees work. And, and I was telling her, this is disgusting. Like this is, this is the world we live in now is we have to sell ourselves both to ourselves. That's really who we're selling ourselves to. Cause we're laying there at night in our beds and we are, we know our dirty little secrets. We know our, our mis- Our miscomings, we we know where we fall short, and so that stuff just eats you alive unless you're not self aware. And so I just think that the more we're trying to be someone else for someone else, or the more we're trying to be someone else and really who we are, what we truly want to do in life, well then it's this it's this pitfall, right? And so you catch yourself. It's not that you're forcing yourself to go outside; it's that you're forcing yourself to pay attention. Because if you're paying attention, you'll go outside if you're not paying attention, you'll sit there at your computer the entire day thinking that you're earning something. Right. And, and we're all guilty of it, of being super efficient with our time. And, and, and I just, um, I just learned some, I wish I knew what I know now and everyone, of course, hindsight and wisdom. And I just wish when I was 15 or 16 or 17, I wish, I wish I knew this because I, I'm not going to say I've wasted a lot of time, but man alive, I would have done way more than I've done now, and I'm not going to stop stepping on the gas now, not ever. Absolutely.
1: Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives we've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out midwayusa.com.
2: So, you know, we talked a lot about you were introduced, you were kind of introduced more, I guess, visually or or kind of in a secondhand manner to hunting. You know, you didn't necessarily have your dad taking you out into the woods. It was more observing him
0: and his buddies having their time. Yeah. And maybe even more so his, and I've talked about this before, but my dad had a, kick-ass collection of books really amazing books and old books hunting books wildlife books and I poured into those things and so even though those gentlemen in those books weren't my dad they kind of became my dad like they became my inspiration to go to mexico go to canada go to the arctic circle go to alaska go to nevada montana you know and and uh, our hardwoods in connecticut or new hampshire or maine you know the big woods in maine and, and um so i was very inspired by these books as well
2: they were they were your uh vicarious mentors if you will yeah um right. and it's it's, it's it's interesting because, you know, somebody I feel like so many people would look at you and be like, oh, man, he has to have been born and raised in the woods and and hunting his whole life. And it's so cool to see, like from the perspective of someone like me, it's so cool to see that that's really so much of, of what drew you into it was was through books and this and that, because it gives I don't want to say give someone like me hope, but it's like you know, it makes you feel like, okay, I can, I can do this too. I can, yeah. I can go on these big adventures. And I know there's so many people that listen to this podcast that are kind of in a similar spot where they weren't necessarily mentored into it. And they're, they're finding their way through videos and books and films like, uh, you know, this, uh, the films you put out and it's just, it's, it's cool to see, but, but so you, you went through all of this, what then, kind of got you into this i guess this adventure style of hunting like what got you into into all of this where'd you go from reading these books to then suddenly being out in you know uh adac or, or you know chasing chasing brown bears or yeah hiking out with with mountain lions on your back which is yeah. i mean come on let's face it that's probably one of the coolest pictures you've ever posted up i got to say <laughs> yeah
0: it's pretty, it's pretty cool and I, and I owe it all to uh sam soholt do you know sam oh
2: yeah i he's been on he's been on the podcast and i feel like i've i've heard that phrase quite a bit where it's like oh yeah that's uh, i i owe that picture to sam soholt <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and, and well he he didn't take it uh but he was uh, William Altman took it, uh, one of our guys at Sigmanta, but Sam, after we killed that lion, we were standing over the lion and it was in deep powder snow. So you could barely see the lion. It looked, I mean, it looked no bigger than a house cat when it was laying there, you know, and, you know, i had been hiking, I think we hiked like 25 or 26 kilometers that day to kill that lion. So I was just sitting there looking at him and I kind of, you know, like, kind of looked at Sam was there and my good friend, Ben Storak and, and Colin McLeod was there. William Altman was there. These are guys that worked with me at Sigmanta and then Houndsman Robin was there. And a friend of ours was there as well named Dawson. And uh, and I just thought, what now, what, what do I do with this line now? And Sam was just sitting next to me because Sam filmed it. Sam worked with our crew and filmed it. And Sam just said, you know, the old timers, they carried them out. And I just looked at him and I said, did they? And he goes, yeah. He goes, the old timers carried them out. That's how they did it. And I was like, Oh, we're going to carry it out then. That's what we're going to do. And so, um, it was just really cool, but you know, I don't really know. It all started for me. I think I started bow hunting when I was like 19 or 20, something like that. And it, it really stemmed from those books, right? I was very inspired by those books to actually go and see some of these places. But I was really inspired. Um, I started duck hunting with some buddies and I was really inspired to start breaking trips down with a couple of buddies. And so we would travel to, when I was in high school, we would drive up to Northern Minnesota. There's a lake there called Thief Lake and a little town called Thief River Falls right on the Canadian border. And um, a, lot of, a lot of ducks stop off there, bluebills, mallards, but a lot of other species, a lot of geese stop off. there. some snow geese. And we started taking these pilgrimages there, right? We'd take a tent, we'd take all of our camping gear, we'd drive, it'd take us like six or seven hours or something like that to drive there. We'd set up camp on the edge of this lake, and then we'd we'd have to take our boat in through the cattails, and we'd have to figure out our route to get into the main body of the lake and hunt. And so it kind of had all the elements of a backcountry hunt, had all the elements of a big adventure hunt. But we were just duck hunting. And so we had to manage the boat and the engine and the decoys and waiters and our food and sleeping quarters. Cause it was, you know, it was late October, early November. It was cold where we were there. And, um, so it just had all these elements. And then in 1994, I think four or five, I went to Alaska for the first time. And, um, I'd met this guy and he said, Hey, I'm going to be going on this trip to Alaska. I'm just going self-guided. I'm going to hunt black bears and, and sitka black-tailed deer. Do you want to go along? And I was uh, absolutely, and that, that trip just moved me beyond anything that I'd ever seen, witnessed or experienced in my life. And just flying into Alaska and seeing the mountains and we rented a car and we drove up to Denali and seeing, you know, looking up on the mountains and seeing dull sheep and, and uh, just all the wildlife that we would see, you know, and, and we hunted, we stayed on a boat in the ocean for 10 days, I think it was and we hunted for 10 days in the Prince William Sound and it was it was the most inspiring activity of my life it it, it moved me beyond beyond words and and I just knew that this is what I was going to do the rest of my life and since that trip in 94 I think it was um I think there's maybe one or two years that I haven't made it back to Alaska since that year so I'm I'm basically going once or twice a year to Alaska since that's incredible I think
2: Alaska is one of those places, again, where it's it's kind of like the, the dream, you know, so many people look at it and it's it's like the ultimate thing to do, whether that's I mean, whether that's like way up there, like, uh, you know, hunting hunting brown bear and and that that super wild, crazy adventure hunt or. Or something that's a little bit simpler, you know, a little bit more accessible, like maybe caribou or black bear yep. or, or sick of black caribou's, tail. Or, caribou's
0: amazing. Black bear is It's all so amazing.
2: And I think there's just what what is it about Alaska that fascinates us all so much? Like what? what? I mean, I guess the, the inaccessibility of it, maybe like it's it's hard to get there or
0: it, it, it's the expanse. It's the wildlife, you know, when you're there it's almost as though you're hunting in a zoo, right? You're seeing animals that you've never seen before, unless you grew up there in Northern Canada. But you know, when you see caribou for the first time, you are like you, you think you're in a Walt Disney movie. Um, first time I hunted caribou, I went out of a village called Kotzebue flew up there. I flew in with a, a plane on floats, a beaver landed on floats. And, and, um, And just getting out and seeing this massive expanse, you know, I I don't think I ever thought that I was even going to see caribou. Right. I was just like, yes, I'm on a caribou hunt. Yes. I'm in the Arctic. Yes. I'm on the tundra, but I've just, I don't know that I ever anticipated actually seeing animals. (laughs) And then I, you know, I go out the first day I take my backpack. I've went through my gear list. My gear list is heavy. It's odd. Things are odd colored there some things are borrowed some things are patched they're sewn i don't have enough sleeping bag i don't really have the right clothing i'm wearing like a duck hunting parka because it's the only warm jacket that i own and i go out on this hill hike around this lake i'm trying to pay attention because there's no trees there's no discernible features at all and so i'm trying to pay attention as i leave camp because i didn't have a gps i you know i had a compass and and So, you know, it's baby steps and I go out on this hill and I'm sitting on this hill and I have my binoculars and I glass and all of a sudden I see some white specks and here comes a herd of caribou, you know, and it's just, it's, it's the danger, right? Bears coming into your camp at night, the perceived danger that people have about wolves. You know, I've been around packs of wolves many, many times in my life and, you know, and, and people love that kind of spine tingling Feeling that you know the wolves are going to get you. It's the same thing with black bears, right? Things. Jack O'Connor. I don't remember the exact quote, but Jack O'Connor said the the forests and the mountains are way more interesting with black bears and grizzly bears in them than without. Even though black bears aren't much of a monster, they're way more interesting with the bears there than without. You know, the, having a monster in the forest, having an unknown monster in the forest makes camping and living and hunting that much more exciting. And so I think it's all of that. It's the danger. It's the inaccessibility you have to get, you have to take a a big plane up to Anchorage and you have to get on a little plane to fly into the bush. And then, you know, you have to talk to some guy that, you know, basically looks like me, you know, and he's, he's angry and he's pissed off and he's weighing your gear and he's talking, talking crap about you. And he doesn't like you, even though you're his client. And, and um, he just wants to drop you off as fast as possible. He can get back to town. And, and it's just all of these things, you know, blended to one. And then you finally start seeing animals you start understanding the animals, you start watching them move and you start this chess game of stalking and finding an animal that you want to take and shooting your rifle and watching the animal go down and then going, walking up to it and the heaviness and the responsibility of now I have to skin this thing. How do I do that? How do I quarter it up? How do I manage the meat so it doesn't rot? Um, How do I get every ounce of meat off this carcass so that a, I've, fleshed out my responsibilities as a hunter but also I don't get in trouble with fishing and game and um and then it's getting back to the village and and it's just i mean it makes you feel alive it's 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 the reason it's what life is for me it's what life is and and doing it it is so inspiring uh literally I'll never stop
2: would you say that i mean would it be reasonable to say that Alaska's really one of the the last like truly wild places left in North America? Like,
0: I mean, it's definitely one of them, right? They call it the last frontier. Um, you've talked to people in Alaska and they, it's funny, people in Alaska call Anchorage part of the lower 48. <laughs> so, so even if you live in Anchorage, you don't get the creed of being an Alaskan, right? They're <laughs> like, Oh, you're a lower 48 or you can, you can go to a subway or a Perkins whenever you want. You know, they're there in the city, you know, and, and you walk around Anchorage and people, you know, like there's drug abuse, a lot of it, and there's prostitution, and there's, you know, police are everywhere, and it's riddled with crime, and it's just certain portions. But it's like any major metropolitan area. But you could also be eating your egg McMuffin at a McDonald's, and a 60-inch bull moose literally walks through the drive-through <laughs> and walks right on by. <laughs> you know, I've, I've I've never eaten at a McDonald's in in um in Alaska, but I've seen it. I've seen, you know, I've been I've been eating at a restaurant, literally had a bull moose walk down the street, you know, and you're like, holy cow. And, and, um, you can see some of these things right out of the city, right? There's, there's, there's bear attacks right out of the city. There are massive doll sheep right in the Chugash mountains, right out of the city. So, you know, you have this element, yes, it's the last frontier, but also, you know, there's spots in Canada that are even more untouched than in Alaska and, and, uh, or the same, I should say. And it's, I mean, there are some, there are some areas in there are still many areas in Canada and Alaska lakes, streams, rivers that have never seen a, a fishing lure ever, not ever, or not, in you know, decades, if not multiple decades. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah.
2: There's the, probably once upon a time, there was some lost French trapper that, that threw a line in there yeah. in there caught it, caught his fish and moved on. But, but yeah.
0: that, and that's it. Right. And, And if they're they're not good enough destinations for an outfitter or a pilot or um, a resident to go there and exploit the the resource or to to utilize the resource, um, then it's going to remain untouched. So if you have a beautiful lake or a beautiful little stream, you know, if you have a stream with small to medium rainbows and it's chock full of small to medium rainbows, but... Three systems over, there are multiple streams with giant rainbows. Well, everyone's going to go to the giant rainbow spot, right? No one. So this little stream with gorgeous little rainbows that are amazing on a fly rod and taste amazing when you eat them and are as wild as anything you've ever seen in your life. No one will even go there because there's a sensational system. You know, two systems over. Like I'm, I'm going to a place this year in Alaska, um, which will remain unnamed a friend of mine indicated it to me but he's basically like i'll let you go there but you can't tell anyone where you're going and he's like and it is going to be super hard to get to so i have to fly in on a bush plane get out put all of my gear which is substantial because it's a rat it's going to end up being a raft hunt so i have to carry rafts camera gear all of my camping gear everything it's too much for me to do it as a backpack So I have to land and put all this stuff on a sled and pull it for miles and miles and miles and miles to the river, hunting my way along the way. So if I get an animal, now I have to deal with the meat and moving everything at the same time. And then he said, when you get to the river, there's likely not going to be enough water to float the raft. So he's like, you're probably going to have to hike down the river five or eight miles before there's even going to be enough water to float the raft. And then you're going to have to float a hundred miles out you know? And so I might run into really good hunting. I might run into absolutely nothing. That's the other caveat that comes with Alaska is there's a mass expanse. So there's not a lot of animals, but if I find myself in and amongst really great animals and having a really sensational hunt, I'll have a sensational hunt, whether I see anything or not. But if I do see something, it'll be exponentially wonderful. And then all that hard work, it'll be amazing. It'll be incredible. And and I'm probably not going to see that many other people there because it is so difficult. Right. I might not
2: even see anyone. That's one of those amazing things where when you put in effort like that, yeah, of course you want to see animals. You know, again, it's there's so many, so many reasons to it. But eventually when we're out hunting, the goal is to harvest an animal. But it's so hard. You know, it's if you can't find satisfaction in an adventure like that and and going into the unknown and not knowing you know, how it's going to, how it's going to end up. I mean, and especially with somebody, I mean, there's so much satisfaction in, in putting in that work and, and finding that terrain. But uh, it's, I'm, I'm excited to see what comes of that. Yeah,
0: um, people don't realize the journey. Like people, people will talk about it. They'll say, Oh, it's the journey. It's not the destination. People say that, but they really don't understand what it means because if you're hunting, like, let's say this year, you find a 400 inch bull elk and you, and let's say you take a couple of shortcuts to kill them, right? Let's legal shortcuts, but let's say you, you're like, oh, if I can get on my neighbor's ranch, I can sneak in the back door, cut off all the other public hunters. I can drop right into that drainage and I, I have an eye on them and, um, and I'm going to kill them on opening day. And that's great. Uh, so let's say you do that and it's successful like, when you're standing over that animal you're definitely going to feel a lot of pride and a lot of excitement when you release your arrow or, or squeeze your trigger. But really, you know, you, you short stroked yourself out of a a longer experience if that were how it was going to come to you naturally. I'm not saying I wouldn't take a shortcut myself. I've, I've done some stuff like that in my life and tried to head an animal off at the pass. If you won't, it's sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't, but really when you're looking at, the experience of your journey. And, and even if you're standing over this massive animal, as soon as your arrow hits it, that kind of excitement is is over. It's, it's transitions into another feeling and then you cut it up and you carry the antlers out and maybe you share the picture on Instagram or something like that and you get some likes and you get some comments and it's another little euphoric high, but really the whole journey of your hunt The whole journey of your process, of your scouting, of your hiking, this is really where you need to hang your hat. This is really like, even if I don't see animals, I will have a fantastic experience, even if it's miserable, even if the bugs are horrible, even if the weather is horrible, even if I have to drag this raft the entire way like that, these are the experiences that you have to hang your hat on because that little cherry on top, the little cherry that comes at the end, whether it be in the beginning at the end or at the end, at the end is the beginning of the end. Like as soon as you release your arrow and it hits that animal, you know, that experience is that the light of that experience is starting to dwindle. It's starting to come to a close. It's starting to dim. And so you really, I urge people to really start paying attention from, and I, I, I just literally said this to myself yesterday. I said that next time I go on a big trip, Alaska, even driving to Illinois, even driving from my house to a property that I hunt in Wisconsin, I, I reminded myself that I want to experience that drive, the flight, the journey. I, I don't want to, I don't want to compartmentalize these things and talk them behind me. Like when I walk into, when I walk into the Anchorage airport for the first time, this next time, I I don't want to just say I've been in the Anchorage airport a thousand times. Yes, I get off the airplane. I know exactly where we already are. I know where to get coffee. I know where to grab our bags. I know where to go to, to catch a, an Uber to the airport or the hotel shuttle. I don't want to compartmentalize this stuff and be like, I've been on, been on this road a thousand times. I want to convince myself that I've never been to Anchorage. I want to walk off and I want to look at the artwork again. I want to see the animals that they have in there to kind of highlight to tourists, what, what animals live in Alaska. I want to re-experience these things. And this year when I, I'm, I'm using a different um, pilot than I've used in years. And so I really want to look at his or her airplane. I really want to, when I nestle in there, I want to watch his or her hands move on the dashboard. I want to watch him turn the dials. I want to watch him lower and test the flaps. I want to see, how they push the throttle and the yoke. I want to watch the pilot fly. I want to see different areas that I've never flown into. And I just want to, I want to take this with me every second of the day. And um, I want to do this all the way up into the end. And I know there's going to be times when I'm sitting there sweating, probably covered in flies, not even close to the river, not sure what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Am I even going to see a caribou or a moose? Am I in, even going to see a black bear or a grizzly bear? What's, what are the water conditions? Is, this, is the romanticism that I built up in my head of what my campsite's going to look like? Swirls of smoke coming out the top of my teepee. Piles of wood in my teepee. Moose quarters hanging in the timber, drying, cutting meat off for dinner. Hearing the sizzle on the wood stove. Having a cup of coffee in the late afternoon. Casting a fly rod into the river because I've already got my moose and I'm catching grayling. Is any of that going to happen? And I don't know, but I might as well hang the gold standard on every step to get to that point.
2: Man, that's just I'm. I don't even know how to respond to that because it's 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 perfect. Like it sums it up. You know, there's there's a few moments uh, I've had in this podcast that just kind of leave me speechless, and that's definitely one of them. Um, I mean, it's so important. Gosh, and I I hate that I'm about to say this because it's it's probably the most over one of the most overused phrases and all of this stuff in the podcasting when it comes to hunting. But it's, you know, understanding your why and why you do all of this and your vision behind it. And I hate, hate the phrase, oh, you know, understand your why. Um, but it it's true. And take the time to really nail down why you're doing this take the time to nail down your vision that's associated with that. And it will fuel you throughout all of the most aggravating, you know, I'd say worst, worst moments of the hunt, which you look back and always seem to turn out to be the best moments of the hunt. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the most, It you know, it's the oldest, uh, I've come to realize that's like the oldest, oldest thing of the book is like those worst moments in the moment. The worst moments are awful at the end of the hunt, they are the best moments of the hunt.
0: Yeah, they're the most memorable, right? And they're the most impactful. And sometimes you have the cherry on top. I did a hunt this last year in Alaska and it was, it was not good, but I think about the highlights. I think about things that I remember. I stayed in probably the worst campsite that I've ever stayed in in my life. Had the teepee set up on the side of the river, trapped in between a section of tundra and the river itself. And our campsite every single day was four inches of standing water and we would cut pine bows and we, and we don't have a floor in our teepee. So we'd cut pine bows to walk on, to cook on, to sleep on. And we, we, we travel with these little low, low leg cots, which are um, from a company called Helio. I think, I think that's how you say it, but it's, they're, they're amazing. Um, and luckily we had them because it's the only thing that kept our down sleep bags, even remotely dry. And so, you know, I think about that horrible campsite and I think about, we called in a young bull moose from that campsite. And I think about him coming in through the timber, crossing the river. I can see it you know, literally like it was yesterday. And I hope this remains for the rest of my life, but I could see him step down into the river and, And if the river was much deeper than he thought. And so he kind of stumbled when he stepped in the river, but he came across river grunting, you know, I think about that. And I, we saw a massive black bear, his fur just covered in frost. He was way up on a hillside where he's going to den for the winter. And he was literally just mowing like someone would mow their lawn. He's mowing the blueberry bushes, just getting ready for winter. And and I almost took that bear's life. And there's a great part of me that wishes I had. Um, and there's, and there's a great part of me that that's really happy that I didn't, I was testing a new rifle cartridge. Um, like you and I were discussing before a new one from true velocity and, and, um, they have this proprietary 6.8 really cool cartridge. And if I would have killed that bear with that cartridge, it would have been the first animal ever killed with this cartridge. So I had this opportunity of being first. But that that weird little accolade, even though it weighed in my mind, like I was not going to take an animal's life to check that off the list. And so, I just watched him move, and he was massive. We thought he was a grizzly bear; that's how big he was. And just watching him feed and seeing his whole back was covered in frost, and clouds were moving in and out, and it would snow, and it would melt off, and it would snow. Like his winter was coming. He had made it all season. He clearly was an old bear. So I just talked to myself out of it, you know, and I was just like, you know what, he's made it this far. And, and, um, sometimes I fall into this remorse of being a hunter and, you know, I should have taken that bear's life. I would have really enjoyed hunting him, potentially killing him, skinning him out. Um, I'd love to be showing you his hide right now, his skull. I would have loved eating his meat. You know, I, I know his meat would have been fantastic with where he was living and how he's living his life. And, but then also just walking away that afternoon, you know, I had goosebumps feeling like, you know, like he's not going to get killed by another hunter. There isn't, isn't even another hunter anywhere near here. So like the fact that I walked away means he's good to go. And so I think about that bear on that hunt. I think about that terrible campsite, like the moose crossing the river, sharing a dinner at, at uh, a few campsites later with grayling, uh, the Northern lights were some of the best I've ever seen a couple of the nights. And so, I didn't shoot a moose. Didn't even, I think I probably saw two legal bulls, not either one of them that I wanted to shoot. I didn't shoot the bear. So I came away with, as you would say, nothing. And, um, but still I'm going to take those little nuggets and I'm going to, there's two things. I'm going to save those little nuggets as memories experiences. I now know where I'm not going to set my tent up next time. Another, another lesson learned when you set tents up, when you set a lot of tents up, It doesn't always go perfect, even though you sent a thousand tents up, like still finding that right spot. Sometimes you're caught between a rock and a hard place and you really can't find a perfect spot. So you're stuck. Um, So I'm going to think about all these little nuggets from this trip, but I also want to think about this trip as though it's my only time ever going to Alaska. What experiences I got caught this year, um, being there and not being present a couple of days, I caught myself just being like, I've done this a thousand times, you know, what's tomorrow going to bring. And I don't ever want to fall into that trap again. And so I, I want to think about that trip as though it's the only trip I've ever taken to Alaska. And the next trip I take to Alaska, or like I said, the next trip I take into my backyard, I want to treat it as though it's my last one.
2: I think that's something super important that, that we should all take into every home we do, whether you are, going into uh, sit in a tree stand uh you know on your own property over a food plot or whether yeah you're going into alaska or going out into the wilderness in wyoming or you know up into bc or wherever it may be i think there is a mindset and it's i'm going to say something that completely doesn't make sense well i guess it does but you have to go in with the mindset that it's your your very first hunt there and it's your very last hunt there. You have to go in with the eyes as if you've never seen any of this before and that same kind of sense of wonder at the first time you saw a grizzly bear or the first time you saw that herd of caribou coming over the mountain. And, yeah. and you have to hold on to that like you're never going to see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... I think we would have a lot better hunts and we'd have a lot more successful hunts. If we went in with that, with that attitude, if we didn't let ourselves, you know, get into that mode, like when you're
0: driving to work (laughs) and you just disappear. And you don't remember the drive. Exactly. Exactly. You go on a moose hunt in Alaska and you don't remember the moose hunt and, and you're seeing so few moose that you stop looking, right? If you're on a moose hunt and you're seeing 10 moose a day, you never stop looking. I mean, you get up in the morning, like it's Christmas morning, you get your coffee, you have a little quick breakfast, you get up on the hill or you get to wherever you're going and you're like, I'm going to see a lot of moose today. So you start, you know, but if you go on a hunt and the first day you don't see a moose, ah, okay. Second day, third day, fourth day. Okay. You know, it starts to add up to where you kind of stop looking for moose, right? And, and you get caught in that, um, you're not picking the forest apart. You're not looking at the ridge tops. You're not looking for fresh tracks. You're not listening for a grunt or a cow call. And, and, um, and I, have had this a couple of days on caribou hunts where I've seen a lot of caribou the first day, maybe the second day. And then all of a sudden it, it kind of dries up and I will have passed several bulls in the first couple of days. And then all of a sudden I'll be sitting there the third day, seen not one animal, fourth day, not one animal falling into the fifth day. You know, I'm starting to like. Oh, oh my word! I should have 100. I should have. I should have killed one of those bulls. Or, you know, what was I thinking? And you start to second guess this. And then all of a sudden, caribou show up again, and and um, either find the right bull, or that's just how the hunt progresses. But uh, unless you're really thinking about these things, for me anyway, unless I'm really present and really thinking about these things, they become shortcomings and they become shortcuts, and your mind wants to. Um, do you know who Tom Clum Senior is?
2: I know the name. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure had, why, but I know the name.
0: I entered a mentorship with him and with Joel Turner and Aaron Snyder to shoot trad bows a year or so ago. And I started shooting trad bows with those guys. And, and, um, one of the elements that Joel and Tom taught me about shooting a trad bow, and it also equates shooting a rifle and a compound bow shooting anything is that your mind wants to give you shortcuts instead of going through the correct process and really enveloping the whole process and having this pull, 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 pop, and this release, or your mind wants to give you shortcuts. You slap the trigger. It wants to, you know, instead of settling in and aiming and then squeezing the trigger and having a surprise release, your mind wants to like, Oh, we can time this. We can time your, your, your pin with, or your crosshair with going over the bullseye and you can just smash it. We can get there super fast same as shooting an animal like big animals coming like instead of settling in and picking a spot and just really pulling through your shot like just slap the trigger get an arrow in them and or bullet in them and and, you know that it's this mindfulness of of not allowing these shortcuts so it's the same thing on a trip when you're traveling or you're hunting or you're in a stock like don't allow your mind to hopscotch these shortcuts don't allow the don't allow this little Synapsis jumped jump of your mind to say like, Oh, I've done this a thousand times. This is exactly what's going to happen. And so that's what I'm trying to stop myself from. And that's what I've been trying to do more and more and more every year. And, and that's why, that's also why some of the things we do, like I like difficult hunts. I like having to put a lot of energy in cause it's way easier to be present, way more easy to be present. Right. And, and, or way easier. And, and, um, so it's just, It's just something that I really enjoy. It's just the same thing. Like if I shoot a doe or um, shoot a buck or whatever it is, a rabbit, like I make skinning it out a process for me, you know, and, and caping it out and skinning it out and looking at the bones and cutting the meat off and really the whole process. And um, I'm putting in a butcher shop at, at our cabin here at sick Manta this next year. And I just, am really looking forward to, Um, sometimes I have a local butcher that breaks my animals down if I'm going on another trip or I'm stuck and and don't have a lot of time or whatever, but I really like breaking them down myself. And, um, I don't know, I'm just, the whole process is is something that I want to uh, dive into that much more all the time. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting
1: with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Well, on that note, um, as we're winding down, I, I would love to finish with say you meet someone you're coming back from a hunt they see you're a hunter and they're like oh man i uh i've always wanted to do that but i just i have no history with it i don't know anyone that does it i i don't know you know i don't know there's so much to learn it's it's pretty intimidating you know you run into someone like that what how would you inspire them what kind of advice would you give that person to to get them out into the wild
0: Mm-hmm. I would, there's two things that I would do. I think, um, and I haven't given this much thought, although I get asked this a fair amount. Um, I would either have them engage in an outfitter that they believe in and trust and that an outfitter is interested and excited about welcoming a newbie into kind of the fold. Like it would be interesting if I were just starting out, it'd be interesting to talk to kind of a small time outfitter or maybe a friend of a friend and just say hey i really want to go on a caribou hunt i really want to go on an elk hunt i don't care about the size of the antlers um but i'd love to go with somebody that loves to teach and i would love to work with them about my gear list you know how to go in and basically break all the elements down and that's that's one aspect the other aspect is to find a mentor right to to try to befriend someone who is you know and if you meet people in any uh distinction they want a lot of people really want to help people that are just coming into the fold with something. Like if you if you just pick up mountain biking and you're at the mountain bike shop and you're like, man, I really want to learn how to work on mountain bikes. Like I really think I'm gonna love mountain biking and I really want to learn how to work on my bikes. Well that guy, maybe he you know, he might say, I have a shop in my house too. Like I have a shop in the back of my house and I'm working on my bikes all the time. Like, hey, I have to change some wheels this weekend, you know you want to come over, you can help me change my wheels. And you, and you get the wheels turning or, you know, or take an archery course at the local archery shop or a rifle shooting course with some local marksman. And and then ask those guys like, Hey, where do you, you know, where do you hunt? You very likely might get an invite and say, Oh, you know, we have a deer camp or we, you know, every year um, we go duck hunting. And you know, we, yeah, you know, like we have this, most of these guys will say, Hey, I have the guns. I have the ammo. You need this license, this stamp. Um, show up here at 4am. Don't be late. And we'll show you how to set decoys out. And we're going to show you how to lay. And, and, you know, when the geese come in and they settle, like you can shoot first. And there's all these opportunities. If you're just extending yourself and you're truly interested in it. Um, there's a lot of opportunities, I think, to find the right people to go with. There's tons of information on, on, um, online, right. You can watch videos. You can you know if you want if you say like how do i gut a deer i'm not saying the person that you're going to watch is going to know exactly what they're talking about but you can watch 10 videos of guys that are saying i'm going to show you how i field dress a deer and you'll learn you'll definitely learn aspects about field dressing a deer or you can say you can google videos and say like backcountry meat prep you know there's videos of um larry bartlett is a guy that uh owns a rafting company in alaska super awesome dude he has he has books float float hunting alaska there's there, i've read all of these books um how to hunt alaska on your own hunting alaska by yourself you know all these things that kind of tell you this is where you set your tent you know set your tent on the inside bend of a river so and set it just back in the spruce so the weather doesn't grab your tent and throw it all around but you can also in the morning you can go out on that point you can call the moose down both Both straightaways after that point, this is where you can have your fire. This is where you can develop your meat pole. This is how to keep bears out of your camp. You start digesting all this information. And, um, the trickiest part for people, for newbies, I think is going into a forest. I talked to a young lady earlier this year and, and she wanted to do a solo elk hunt. And she sent me her gear list. And she's like, I'm going to Colorado or Montana or Wyoming. And I'm, and I'm going into, you know, the Bob Marshall wilderness area by myself. And I'm going to go on it. And I said, please don't, please don't do this. Like you have no business doing this on your own yet. I said, you can go on a camping trip if you want by yourself and pick, you know, I'm making this up because I don't know the lakes, but let's say you find Copper Lake and it has cutthroats in it. And it's, you know, an eight mile hike with a relatively established trail. There's some decent campsites. If you want to do that on your own, knock yourself out, pack your backpack, maybe carry some bear spray or a pistol if it's legal and you want to, um, and hike up in there and go fly fishing for cutthroats. Keep a couple if it's legal, clean them, cook them, Come baby steps, right? Start doing this stuff. But you have no business heading off into the Bob Marshall wilderness looking for elk. If you've never done this before, you need to go with an outfitter, you need to go with a friend. You need to go with a group um, and start breaking it down. There are other small things, right? If you want to learn, start with rabbits, start with squirrels, start with things that don't, you know, we, we tend to want to like jump to the big animals, right? Guys want to have their first elk or they want to have like, they want to, they want to send their dad a picture of their husband, a picture or their wife, a picture and say, I did it, honey. I killed this big, huge, monstrous animal. But, um, you know there's there's definite ways to to truncate this thing down to start breaking it down into much more digestible pieces like like i told you i learned by going duck hunting going duck hunting by truck and boat in northern minnesota is not all that different from going caribou hunting in the arctic circle it's really not camping gear it changes a little bit your meal plan changes a little bit cuz you're restricted on weight your boots are different you know i don't need a boat unless it's an inflatable kayak or raft or something in Alaska. So there are little changes, little adaptations, but it's essentially the same thing. So you can start breaking that stuff down. There's gearless out there. Don't go buying all this high price price. You don't need Kuyu. You don't need Sitka. You don't need all these other brands. Like you can literally go to, you know, um, retail shops that have, uh, discounted stuff. I can't even tell you how many animals I have arrowed, um, wearing a bright purple vest and wearing a bright green this or that, because the only thing I could afford, I wanted this piece from Patagonia. The only one that I could afford was the one on the clearance rack. And the only one on the clearance rack made me look like Barney, the dinosaur. So (laughs) I, I bought it, hunted in it, you know, arrowed a stone sheep in it. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's, there's a lot of information out there, but I'd rather see people be safe, start small, bite off little chunks. And, um, It's incredible, man. It's incredible. It's the finest experience you'll likely ever have in your entire life.
2: So if folks want to follow along, uh, find you online, watch the films, where can they, where can they hunt you down?
0: Um, You know, on Instagram, Donnie underscore Vincent, D-O-N-N-I-E underscore Vincent, V-I-N-C-N-T, DonnieVincent.com. You know, Facebook, same stuff. It's all the usuals.
2: Awesome. Well, I'm going to make sure to link to all of that in the show notes pages. Uh, everyone, make sure you check out the films, get some inspiration, follow along with everything you're doing. Donnie, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me.
0: Thanks, man. I really appreciate the invite.
2: All right, y'all. That'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild.
0: Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes. Check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more.